The time is now. Wait, wait. The day is now, too. Cue up the music. Volume 6, episode 112. It is February 1st, 2022. Do you know what that means? Five years ago today, February 1st, 2017, was a big day in my life and my career. The very first episode of this Employment Law Now podcast, and all because of you, all because of these loyal listeners that for some reason listen to me talk about employment law and human resources issues, we are about to start our sixth year of Employment Law Now. I can't be more thrilled about it. I am very excited about it, and I am so appreciative of all of you. And because this is a star-studded, tremendous gala of an anniversary special, you know who we are bringing on as our guest today. So you all may know Howard as my inaugural guest back on the very first episode of Employment Law Now on February 1st, 2017. Uh, You'll also know him because I say this every single year at the same time that he is my Bill Murray to David Letterman's inaugural guest who he had on his anniversary specials each year of his late night talk show. Uh, Howard is the guest that I bring back to celebrate every single anniversary that I have on February 1st, but Howard is so much more than that. I will give him that much credit. Uh, In addition to being such a great partner of mine here at Cozen O'Connor, Howard is the CEO of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, having also previously served in high-level political and executive appointments in the Bush, Clinton, and Obama administrations in Washington, D.C. Howard, thank you again for coming back for another great and enlightening anniversary special. Mike, it's great to be here. I'm always happy to be compared to Bill Murray, but he needs to design better golf shirts because his ugly golf shirts hide the logo on Jason Kokrak's shirt. So you can't see the Cozen logo. They're too ugly. They need to go. But otherwise, happy to uh, be compared to Bill Murray. Is there anything better than our public strategies guru finding a way to get in a Cozen plug for our golfer? Our PGA uh, golfer. Yeah, there you go. PGA golfer. Yes. That, with an impressive, uh, an impressive 
sponsorship that we've had with him today. Yeah, very cool. Very, very cool. Yeah, really appreciate you coming on. And hopefully if Bill Murray is listening, he will do something about the golf shirts. So, Howard, before we get into some of the substance here, and and there is a lot to talk about, remind us again about your practice here at Cozen and and the kinds of things that you do in the political and public policy space. So, Mike, I run our public strategies practice, which is um, an affiliate of the law firm, in addition to being a practicing lawyer. And we have a federal, state, and local government affairs practice. We help clients navigate through the maze of government, of of course, in Washington, D.C., where I am, but also New York City and state, Philadelphia and Harrisburg, Richmond, Virginia, and Springfield and Chicago. Increasingly, Mike, though, we're, we're working coast to coast. You know, COVID has caused clients to, you know, with their multinational and national businesses to to, to need help wherever they can get it. And, and we've been very effective in parachuting and in helping clients, even where we don't have a physical presence. But fundamentally, we're a lobbying practice and we help clients uh, either keep government out of their hair or create opportunity working with government. Terrific. And, and you know, in addition to this being another anniversary of the podcast, it is also essentially the first anniversary of the President Biden administration. We're going to get a little bit more into the weeds and, and some of the specific issues uh, in a few minutes. But from a 30,000 foot standpoint, what are your overall thoughts on President Biden's first year in office and whether he has accomplished what he set out to do in terms of substance and tone? Well, I think their principal objective in coming in was to be was it was to stabilize the ship. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, he's, he's done that to some degree. I think uh, obviously the backdrop of COVID is extremely challenging for any president. It'd be extremely challenging for anyone. Um, you know, I think he's like, even though he was vice president, even though he's been in Washington forever, he, like all presidents, has struggled to find his lane during his first year. He spent a lot of time being legislator in chief um, instead of the chief executive. And I think as a result, some of that has been successful. Some has been less successful. And I think it's taken him away from kind of that steadying the ship role that that he really um said he'd bring and so but but i think a lot of this is normal and a lot of presidents suffer setbacks in their early days um and he's got three years to go it's a long time yeah no question about that um and and i want to talk also again from a thirty thousand foot standpoint about a significant institution right there in your backyard the united states supreme court um you know it's funny because I, I often get a lot of people who ask a question like, well, why does it matter who's appointing what judges or what judges get appointed to the Supreme Court or, or, for any fed, or to any federal court for that matter? And it's been an interesting year in that regard in terms of showing why it does matter what judges get appointed. We saw and we spent a good amount of time the end of 2021 and right into the beginning of this year on the OSHA ETS uh, where it mattered which court and which judges 
at the Sixth Circuit or the Fifth Circuit and ultimately at the Supreme Court, what their ideology was and what how that would translate into yep. the ultimate ruling on uh, enforcement of the ETS. So appointments of judges has really been put at the forefront uh, of our discussion lately. And just last week, we saw that Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement from the United States Supreme Court. What's your thought on that? And and what can we expect to see in the uh, process that will be taking place in the coming weeks and months now? Well, anytime a justice gets um, steps down, it's obviously enormously consequential. And to your to your earlier point, and in a hyper polarized environment we're living in, you know, as political as it always was. I mean, it's not hard to remember back to Judge Bork um, and his his testimony in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. It was in our youth, but uh, but it's memorable. Speak for yourself. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's memorable uh, and, and consequential. And he he has said he's going to nominate an African American woman to um, replace Justice Breyer. He always said that on the campaign trail that that would be his first Supreme Court nominee. Um, you know he's got some good choices out there, sitting uh, judges, state and and federal that he's supposedly evaluating. Um, I th- I think from a political point of view. Both sides are going to try to use this to their advantage. They're both sides, you know, that Mitch McConnell's going to tell the Republican base, this is why you have to vote to get the Democrats out of power in Congress. You have to, like, you should be motivated to go to the polls because we don't have the power to stop this. And look what happens when you don't have the power to stop it. You know, Biden appoints a liberal justice. And Biden's going to go to his base and say, you may not like all these other things that are going on, um, but you're getting a Supreme Court justice, frankly, just like Trump did um, uh, to some degree. Like Trump made a huge deal out of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. And, um, you know, I think very consequential. So. I think that's how it's going to play out. I, I think whoever he nominates will be highly qualified, heavily vetted, and will will be sitting on on the court in all likelihood. Um, but I think both sides, you know, try to motivate their bases with it. You know, talking about climate and the politics of all this, and I recognize that this is in large measure what you do on a day to day basis. Are, are the people out there tired of this climate? businesses and even the non-business people and you know because you, you mentioned um something that was interesting a moment ago where you know one party is trying to stop what the other is trying to do and you know reverse the the political party who's in the white house or in control of congress and that party is seemingly just doing whatever it can taking whatever time to stop the other one are, are people out there tired of this type of politics and is there anything that any of us can do I think people are tired of it. Um, the n- normal people, <laughs> most people, you know, I, I always say, I think 80% of the country is in the middle and doesn't necessarily agree on everything, but doesn't agree, disagree about all that much. 
And unfortunately, elections are run at the extremes, money's raised at the extremes, and the noise is at the extremes. And I think people are tired of it. You know, I work for Republicans and Democrats at the political level, which is which I'm extraordinarily proud of. It doesn't it doesn't happen that much. It happens. It doesn't happen that much. But I think fundamentally, like most people just want to live their lives. They just want to have money in their wallets. They they just want to be healthy and happy. And they don't care about all the nonsense that the Twitter sphere and cable news have dominated our lives with. I do think, Mike, though, that um, it's a fact of life. And it's not just a fact of life for... For us as people, it's a fact of life for corporations. I think corporations are increasingly pulled, have been increasingly pulled into um, the the political uh, engagement. They've been pulled into political engagement. In fact, we put a note out this morning, how much engagement, how much corporate engagement is is enough um, or too much? You know, because the Republicans and Democrats see some of these, some of the kind of base issues separately or differently, rather. But I think corporations, their customers, their employees, they're expected to engage by their stakeholders, their literal shareholders, their customers, their employees, et cetera, in a way that they never have before. And they've never been expected to before. And I think it's having a profound effect and a effect that's here to stay on, on corporate life. Yeah, no, no question about that. And I guess sticking with this topic of um, what's getting done, what's not getting done, given that we continue to have a Democrat controlled White House and Congress, why are we still not seeing much done in the way of new legislation, new substantive legislation, or uh, are the optics wrong? Is there new legislation and we're just missing it or not being directed? Toward it is, is has COVID nineteen and maybe even some of the big ticket foreign affairs issues putting a monkey wrench in plans for new legislation. I mean, this is where you have to drill down and look at what's happened. I mean, first of all, look back at the last two years during COVID. We passed an extraordinarily significant amount of legislation during the Trump administration and during the first year of the Biden administration. I think Biden overplayed his hand a little bit in trying to pass the act at the end of the year that was like a catch-all social infrastructure package called Build Back Better. And I can go into why it didn't pass. Um, But, you know, Biden passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill with Congress uh, during his first year. That's a $1.2 trillion package. It's extraordinarily significant. Lord knows we need it as a country. Um, our infrastructure is crumbling. You know, Biden goes to Pittsburgh last week to talk about infrastructure and a bridge falls down. So we need uh, infrastructure uh, priority, prioritization. And they were able to get that done last year. They got the American Rescue Plan done. Trump, you know, they got the CARES Act done on a bipartisan basis. So I I, and many other packages um, to deal with COVID. I, per, I personally think we've done too much. Um, 
but but we've done a lot. I think you know Biden never when he got elected, he expected to have a Democratic House and a Republican controlled Senate um, until the D's swept the two Georgia Senate races last January. He um, didn't expect to have the Senate. And all of a sudden they were handed control of a, of the Senate, albeit on a 50, 50 basis. And like anybody, there's a range of opinion on the democratic side of the aisle. And you've got Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema from Arizona, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who are moderate Democrats. And they have a different view on what should happen from a social support perspective. And as a result, Build Back Better didn't get through because you had the collision between what the progressive left was pushing and what these more moderate Democrats were were in favor of. And in a 50-50 Senate, every vote matters. And that's why it didn't happen. But I do think there's a lot to point to legislatively. I, I just think he stepped on his own message by trying to overextend himself and pass Build Back Better, which was just too ambitious. He should have done, been doing a victory lap for the last three months of the year on infrastructure and and moved on to ex- uh, executing his powers as the, as the chief executive. And that's what people, I think, look at wrongly. They say, hey, it's Democratic control. But within the Democratic Party, as you just said, there are so many different groups from the progressive to, you know, yeah. on the other end to the moderates. It's almost like there are multiple parties within the party. Yeah, it's a big tent. I mean, Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin are part of the Democratic caucus. You know, Sanders is a socialist, a self-proclaimed socialist. Manchin represents a state that voted plus 30 some odd points for Trump in two straight elections. So they see the world very differently and it's a big tent. The democratic party is a huge tent. Does president Biden run for re-election? I think so. We'll see. Well, that was kind how, of, that sounds yeah. interesting. I, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it, it People speculate a lot on his health, his mental capacity. Um, It's a really hard job. I mean, how many presidents, every single president ages much more than the number of years they're in the job, in in the job. But look, he's not the first president where people have, you know, commented or had concerns about mental capacity either. Right. Um. You know, I think he does, but he just has, has to, we have to see whether he's able to, to go out and run another campaign and govern another four years. If it, it the, the challenge is there isn't a clear successor and Kamala not Harris, not Harris. I mean, she's, she certainly, she just fired her whole media team. She struggled to, um, create a good first impression as vice president. She's very talented. She didn't do, she didn't run an effective presidential campaign um, when she was running for president. She flamed out very, very early. Um, 
it remains to be seen whether she has the authenticity to um, really resonate with people running a presidential campaign. Um, I, I think that's, I think there are a lot of Democrats who really question that. And look, I don't think it's a coincidence that Biden is not a centrist like people talk about him being. He's an institutionalist, but he's not a centrist. But he was one of the or the most moderate Democrat who ran for president in 2020. And there's it's not a coincidence that he was the one that won. People want moderation. Most people are in the middle. Back to my earlier point. And we're not going to elect some left of like far left candidate president. If Trump runs, which I expect that he will, he, he would trounce Bernie Sanders. He would trounce somebody, you know, running from the, from the far left. So there needs to be whoever it is, it needs to be somebody, whether it's Biden or somebody else, it needs to be somebody that can project moderation. They can be in the middle of the Democratic Party, which is where Biden is. You know, he's not Manchin or Sanders. He's in the middle. But you got to project moderation. You led me right into my next question, uh, you know, going to the other side of the aisle. What is the future of the Republican Party then? And have we seen the last of Donald Trump in national politics? You mentioned, uh, you know, Trump against the Sanders. Does Trump wipe out a re-election campaign for Biden? Um, I don't think so. It just depends, you know, you know how Biden can campaign, like I was saying. I mean, the, the Republican Party, you know, Republicans have a structural electoral advantage because of the Senate and the fact that um, you've got states like Montana and Wyoming and states that are going to send Republicans, although Montana has a Democratic senator, um, states that overwhelmingly are going to send Republicans to Washington um, have equal weight in the Senate with a state like New York and California that are obviously have infinitely larger populations. They also only get to send two senators to, to Washington. So Republicans have a built-in structural advantage. Uh, you know, I think the party's in a troubling place. Uh, it's, uh, like you mentioned, I was a Bush appointee um, before I was an Obama appointee. And Bush, I mean, Bush hates Trump. Um, you know, the speech he gave on 9-11 about where the country is was, I mean, we know what he was saying. It was a remarkable speech. I think the people that were traditionally Republicans, um, you know, Bush and Bush Jr. Republicans by and large don't embrace Trumpism. Trump's got a stranglehold on on the party. Um, you know, he's perpetrated he's he's perpetrated a lie about the election, and uh, and the party's bought into it, and that's extremely it's extremely troubling. It doesn't necessarily translate though into 
lost elections. So they're at a very funky, they're at a very funky place, troubling place. Does Trump run? Yeah, I think he does. Um, I think he, I think he does. I think there are others that are going to run too, but good luck to them. He makes it out of his own party easily. I don't know about easily, but I I don't know. It's just, I'm done underestimating the guy like a a long time ago. I mean, whoever would have thought that this guy would become president of the United States. And meanwhile, he he like vanquished umpteen nominees or or potential nominees for president. and, And he won. I mean, it's, it's remarkable what, whether you love him or you hate him, and I'm squarely in the <laughs> in in the dislike column, but you have to appreciate his ability to resonate with people and to um, he's the master of the stump. He's the master. He's a he's a master influencer. And for whatever reason, he always has been. Um, he's always dominate. He's always found a way to dominate. You know, back in the day, Mike, the New York Poster, whatever the headlines were, he was dominating them. And I just don't. I just you can't bet against the guy. It's disturbing, but you can't bet against the guy. You think we'll ever get to a point where we get rid of political parties altogether? You know, I, I, I firmly believe that part of the issue with politics is that everything is a label. And you're Democrat, yeah. you're Republican, you're liberal, you're conservative. You know, when I was in high school, I agree. You know, you're in high school in the cafeteria and you have a slate of candidates in front of you, your classmates running for school president. And their position is we're going to have free lunch or we're going to not have class on Fridays. And you voted for the person whose slate you agreed with more than the others. It didn't matter what you yeah. were or what we called you. Are we ever going to get to that part of politics where I can vote for the person who I agree with more on more issues than simply having to be forced to be pigeonholed into a particular label? Yeah, probably not. Okay. I'm glad but, I <laughs> that two minutes. But, but it doesn't mean that we're going to have Democrats and Republicans forever. And I mean, political parties come and go, countries for that matter, come and go and, and things change and and evolve. And I don't think it's a fait accompli that we're going to have Democrats and Republicans. And I also don't think it's a fait accompli that we'll have just two parties. Um, You know, lots of things can, can happen. And there are a lot of people that think that we'd be better off with a European style democracy where you had lots of different parties. And, you know, if, if we were a European style democracy, I think a lot of people, myself included would belong to a party that represented the middle as opposed to the, as opposed to the ends. And, you know, I think a lot can change, but I think you need to, organize around something and i don't think political parties go away altogether yeah we thought that you know back in in the ross perot era uh which you know i mean that's that seems like a hundred years ago and i guess no one benefited from that more than maybe saturday night live but but you know when ross perot came up and, and started his movement 
that was the beginning of some people saying, hey, we, we may have a third political party. Maybe it's not just about two political parties. And then, you know, here we are back again with, I think, the Republican and Democrat labels stronger than ever. And I'm not convinced they're going to let anyone else in the sandbox. Yeah. I, sadly, I think that, look, after the Great Depression, World War II kind of brought the country together. And you know, launch the greatest generation and, and all that. I mean, I, unfortunately, I think some bad stuff may have to happen to catalyze the country and, and kind of propel it forward, bring us back together. We're too... Global we're too, pandemic doesn't do that? Two years of, of this generational pandemic doesn't do that? What, what, I mean, it, it should, but look at the politics politicization of vaccines and masks. And I, I think it's, I think it has created more division as opposed to more togetherness just because people have taken advantage of kind of the cultural cross currents running through the country and politi politicize them um, as opposed to just keeping them in a cultural lane, they've, become, they've, they've turned into political issues, and I think it's tough. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about uh, that whole issue around COVID and the vaccines and the mandates. First, on the federal level, we all know just last week on uh, January 26th, OSHA announced that it would be formally withdrawing its vaccine ETS. And uh, as I said on Twitter, that is essentially two months of my life that I'm never going to get back. Um, <laughs> Do you think that President Biden nevertheless accomplished his goal when he announced his intentions on the mandate back in September? Uh, his intentions were to get as many people vaccinated uh, as possible, whether or not he ever thought that the ETS would survive challenge. Do you think he actually accomplished what he set out to do? And have we heard the last from the feds, at least on the vaccine and testing issue? I think we probably heard the last uh supposedly they're still writing a final rule but i you know i mean yeah i mean i don't i don't know what that even means in this context and i think we basically heard the last and and by the way the fact that the vaccine doesn't stop omicron i mean it helps keep you healthy it's still very important but i think it kind of changes the dynamic a little bit um uh you know i i think did he accomplish what he wanted i guess so i he was pushing the envelope i think they felt like they had no choice um they knew they were on somewhat flimsy legal ground at least with the court it certainly didn't do any certainly didn't do any harm um and and yes i think he fundamentally he basically accomplished what he wanted i think they could do without the headline, and a lot of it is about the headlines, they could do without the headline that his vaccine mandate failed. So I don't think they loved kind of where it came down. And I think, look, these guys are motivated much more by the perception than they are by the substance generally. So I think perception matters enormously inside the White House, inside government. So I don't, I don't think they're thrilled about the loss, but I think on substance, they're okay with where they landed. So uh, I, I think it's fair to say that 2022 will still see 
significant challenges here on the domestic front, uh, certainly uh, abroad and, and with a lot of foreign affairs issues. And of course, COVID-19 is going to continue to be a significant undercurrent uh, throughout at least this year. What can businesses, what can employers expect, do you think, at least on the federal level, from a Biden administration uh, agenda in 2022? So they're done, I, I think, trying to legislate these massive packages. They're talking about voting rights. They're talking about trying to resurrect, build back better in some form. They know they aren't going to get voting rights legislation through. So they may get some sort of slim down tax provision. They they may get some version of build back better, like seriously slimmed down through. I, I don't know. But most fundamentally, they have a tremendous amount of regulatory and executive power. And um, in, in many ways, I think that Biden will um, go back to his plan pre-Georgia, you know, January 5th, 2021, and dust off the playbook that they'd originally been intending to uh, use and, and really assert that the rulemaking power and the, the executive power. Um, big tech is in the crosshairs, for example, and you've got several aggressive regulatory appointees at places like the um, FTC, just for example. So I think I think that's what business um, can expect is a reassertion of executive power and that they'll be under the gun. And you and I have talked quite a bit on this podcast about the need to look beyond the federal level and what's going on in Washington and focus as well on state and local activities. Do you have any kind of forecast on some of the issues we might see being aggressively pushed on the state and local levels? Well, certainly, I mean, it depends on the depends on the state. Um, you know, there are only two states in the entire country with um, divided legislatures, where you've got one branch that's the the other branch that's our. So you've got a lot of uniformity. And by the way, those are Virginia and Minnesota. Uh, you can't so, imagine the number of emails I was going to get to ask the answer. <laughs> I mean, that. seriously. Come on. Seriously. Uh, you, there's a lot of uniformity. So in places where you have Republican-controlled legislatures, you're going to get more of a pro-business bent. In places where you have Democratic controlled legislatures and a democratic governor, you're going to get more um, labor-friendly policies, more employee-friendly policies. Some of the, you know, kind of thing that they've struggled to enact at the federal level, I think in your realm, Mike, um, this is called employment law now. So, I mean, I think human resources related policies that favor employees and big labor I think are the kinds of things that we can expect to continue to see at the state and local levels. Certainly, you know, paid sick leave, minimum wage, and and a real critical issue that yeah. we're going to start to see is in the area of employee mobility. You know, President Obama uh, talked a lot about this call to action for states to get involved in restrictive covenants, non-compete agreements. We haven't seen a lot on the federal yeah. level 
but we're certainly seeing a lot of states and, and local governments around the country do something about that. Yeah. Things like predictive scheduling and, you know, this, these employee friendly policies that, um, uh, you know, we've seen pop up in some jurisdictions. I think, I think that's what we can expect to continue to see. I think, you know, we'll, we're in the midst of also this crazy because of the, I guess, because of the pandemic, this crazy labor market and supply chain challenges. And um, I think labor and supply chain are heavily correlated. They're basically the same issue. There's a lack of available labor. Why is that? I don't think we really know the answer to that yet. Some of it maybe what some of it's COVID. Some of it is, I mean, a lot of it is COVID because people are out. Certainly right now with Omicron, that's an issue. Uh, some of it, people have argued, is because of the COVID relief money going out where people were incentivized not to work, but that's gone. Um, I think some of it is a lack of immigration, um, reduced immigration. Um, so that's a major issue. Obviously, that's a federal issue. Um, but I, I think, and, and I think people are working different ways. Like people are working gig economy style as opposed to more traditionally. And I, I, I don't think government has really wrapped its arms around, around that issue the way it has to, because people want to work in different ways. And I think some of what the Democrats are pushing, some of those Policies are, I think, out of step to some degree with the way people want to work. And I think we've got to kind of work through that and, and sort it all out. So how do businesses and, and organizations and C-suite executives who may be listening to this, how do they get involved? How do they get to exercise their voice on the federal level and state and local levels and you know, talk to their elected officials and say, hey, this is the agenda that we want to push. We want to be involved in, in the deliberations on this particular issue. How do people get involved? I mean, pick up the phone and talk to the people that represent you they they have a remarkably open door you know you want to be thoughtful about when and where to engage but you have to make your voice heard and as i said earlier there's tremendous pressure on corporate america to um to 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 make your voice heard there's you know if you look at trust in institutions trust in government Trusted institutions is down overall. Trust in government is down over time. I'm not talking about in the last couple of years significantly. And people trust business more than they trust government. So government, there people are looking to business to, to wade into policy. And, and that's going to be a real challenge. But as far as government's concerned, I mean, if there's, if there's an issue that's significant, that's significant enough that you need an effort to talk to government. Obviously you can hire us or a firm like ours to represent you, but fundamentally, you know, your electeds are there to represent you. They care more about jobs than they do about anything. I always say jobs are the greatest currency in politics. People think it's money, but it's jobs. Assert yourself, talk to people, you know, ask for an opportunity to 
to speak. Let them know who you are. Let them know what you care about. Let them know what's moving the needle for your employees and your customers and what's creating economic opportunity in their districts. That's what they care about. And if you put your head in the sand and hide on the sidelines, you don't have the opportunity to engage and assert your values, you know, fundamentally ask for the opportunity to talk to folks. And it seems like uh, this is going to be a stupid question, but that's okay. I assume it's easy. There is no stupid question. Well, you know, there, there are. But it's probably easier to do what you're suggesting uh, as a group of employers, whether it's through an industry group, a trade organization, uh, than one company individually picking up mm. the phone. Though, you know, I, I suspect, depending on the size and the stature of your company, that may change, but... It depends. I mean, trade associations play to the lowest common denominator group denominator. They have to go through a process of making sure that the positions they take are supported by all or most of their members. And, and so that only allows them to be, you know, edgy to a point. I mean, they're very important and they play a very important role, but, you know, that's why individual company, we have trade association clients and we have individual corporate clients for whom, an issue rises to the level it's too particular to them and they want their own voice. And in that case, you don't want to rely on the trade association, but certainly the, the broad cross-cutting issues. Yes. You know, your trade associations are very effective representatives. This is um, great stuff as always Um, last, but certainly not least. uh, And I don't know why anybody would listen to any other podcast. Uh, And I don't usually um, publicize or promote other podcasts, but because you are so gracious with your time (laughs) every February 1st, uh, I want to end with this. You are also obviously involved in your own successful regular podcast series. What is it and where do people find it if they want to listen to more of you and your team? Thanks, Mike. It's the Beltway Briefing. We put it out every week. It's a bipartisan conversation about what's going on in politics and government. Um, we have guests, we have um, you know, a group of us on our team that participate regularly and you can get it at cozen.com or feel free to send me an email at hschweitzer, H-S-C-H-W-E-I-T-Z-E-R at cozen.com. And we will get you subscribed and we appreciate the plug, Mike. Absolutely. And as we start our sixth year here at Employment Law, congratulations. We start our sixth year. It is crazy, Um, but it's only because uh, I am so lucky to have people listening to uh, any of this that we're able to do that. As we start our sixth year, I cannot thank you enough, as always, for sharing your tremendous insight and prognostication from the inside, as I like to say. Um, You are a terrific guest, and uh, I really look forward to bringing you back on next February 1st, if not sooner. Well, thanks for having me on. Congrats on the anniversary. This stuff is is hard to do. It's hard to uh, pull these things together each and every week, and you've done a great job. I you know, the first place I went to understand the court's decision on the um, ETS was your podcast and you just laid it all out. You do a phenomenal job and I hope everybody listens and appreciates the value of the content. It's much better 
Mike, you're wearing your Dallas Cowboys hat. It's much better content than what the Dallas Cowboys put out. Although I can't say anything. My Giants are horrible. Your Cowboys are better, but not that much better. Well, so anniversary special number seven may see a brand new annual guest here. Thanks to that comment. (laughs) But uh, I do appreciate it. And uh, as always, great to talk with you. And I'll look forward to the next time. Thanks, Mike. Well, as always, Howard provides such great insight, fascinating information. I really appreciate him coming on, as he does every year at this time, to help celebrate the anniversary of Employment Law Now. And again, I know I've said it several times already, but I can't thank all of you enough. If it weren't for you listening to the podcast, there would not be a sixth season about to get underway. So my promise to you is as long as you continue to listen to me for some reason, I will continue to provide hopefully helpful, informative, and entertaining content right here on the podcast. Until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.